Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Uh, this evening we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but before we dive into today's text, um, if you already have your Bibles open there, uh, put a bookmark there and first turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 to consider some things as a way of introduction for our main text. So 1 Peter chapter 3. In his first epistle, the Apostle Peter pens a letter to Christians throughout the Roman Empire. At the time, Christians were experiencing intense persecution. For those Christians, this persecution was misdirected and unfair because Roman citizens viewed them as responsible for the burning of the city of Rome. This event was recorded in history as the Great Fire of Rome. You can look that up on Wikipedia. It was an intense fire that lasted for nine days, and it burned two-thirds of the city. It's rumored that the emperor of Rome at the time, Nero, ordered the fire because he had a better vision for the city. He thought he should rebuild it into something greater by building a grand palace and thereby make a name for himself. The Roman citizens were devastated by the destruction and their resentment toward Nero began to rise up. Fearful of the people, and in order to preserve his earthly riches and position as emperor, Nero spread lies saying that it was those Christians who had started the fires. And the Romans, who already viewed God's people in a negative light because they felt that Christians threatened and opposed their culture, um, they accepted Nero's lies and doubled down on their animosity and persecution against Christians. That was the background of the situation for Christians in the Roman Empire when Peter wrote this letter to them. But in light of all of this, Peter writes to the saints in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Um, look at that with me, 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. So in other words, he tells the Christians to stay on track. He tells them to purpose in their hearts, to resolve in their minds that when they are persecuted, they will choose to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This exhortation, I will say, is relevant to everyone here today. Though we as Christians aren't heavily persecuted in America, or even particularly in Northern Virginia right now, you can see the trend of our culture, and you can see that its values are growing ever distant from God's word. Persecution and animosity toward obedient followers of Christ is building up. And like the early Christians to which Peter wrote, you, Cascades Bible Church, will also need to be ready to give an explanation of your hope in Christ. Have you ever walked away from an encounter or a conversation with someone who was angry with God and afterwards thought to yourself, that person needs Jesus, yet I failed to show the hope in Jesus to him? I confess that I have. I've done that many times, and I'm sure many of you can relate. We aren't even personally experiencing persecution for our faith, and yet we fail to give hope to people we encounter. 
So how can we then heed Peter's exhortation and always be ready to give an account for our hope in Christ? I think we can look to the Apostle Paul for that answer. Paul was a man who was always ready to give his reason for the hope in him, and the way he did that was to constantly rehearse the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for helpless and hopeless mankind. There's a book that came out within the last decade. It, was called, or it is called A Gospel Primer for Christians. And in this book, the author Milton Vincent starts by giving 30 reasons for why it is essential for believers to rehearse the gospel to themselves. And the very first reason he gives is that this was modeled for us throughout the New Testament. To support this assertion, he points to the structure that is common in most of Paul's letters, where Paul typically starts by spending a significant amount of time reciting gospel truths to the recipients of his letters, and then getting to the point of his letter. You can see it clearly in the first half of Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, and even, as we'll see today, 2 Corinthians, which will be the focus of the rest of our time this morning. So in, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul is responding to attacks against his character and denials of his apostleship by false teachers who are trying to infiltrate the Corinthian church. In these first five chapters, Paul responds to the accusations by gently and clearly explaining the motivation for his ministry, which simply stated is all for Christ. His motivation was all for Christ. And then chapter 5 is where Paul really brings everything to its climax and clearly explains why he does what he does, everything that he does, which is for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And it's also in this chapter, chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul gives us three profound truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ that should energize your own gospel witness. So as a preview, the three truths we're going to consider this evening are as follows. First, Paul presents the profound truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ renews your entire being. Second, Paul explains that the gospel of Jesus Christ has restored your relationship with God. And third, Paul points out to us that the gospel of Jesus Christ requires you to relay the same message to the world. As we examine these truths this evening, my hope is that God's word will renew in all of you today a passion and a desire to share the good news of the gospel everywhere you go. So turn your Bibles now with me to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. And I will read that right now. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The first gospel truth that Paul provides here to energize your gospel witness is this. The gospel renews your entire being. And that, again, was back in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul starts this section with the phrase, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. We know the word if as a conditional term, meaning that the condition may be true or may not be true. So, for example, uh, we would use it in a statement such as, If you are hungry... You should eat. So it's possible that you aren't hungry and therefore you shouldn't eat. But if it's true that you are hungry, then you should eat to satisfy your hunger. But what if when you are hungry, you don't eat because you're fasting or dieting? Is that possible? Yes. (laughs) Who said no? (laughs) Also, you can even eat if you aren't hungry, right? So in my example, if you're hungry, you should eat. There's no straightforward or universal response. You might eat, you might not eat. But there's also a different way of using the word if, where you can use it to express a universal truth. For example, you might say, if water reaches 100 degrees Celsius, it boils. It's true that when water boils, it is at least 100 degrees Celsius. And on the flip side, if water is at least 100 degrees Celsius, it's boiling. You can start with either side of the if sentence, and it will always be true. And it is in this manner of using the if condition that Paul starts off this section. When Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is saying that everyone that he has to, or everything that he has to say after this is true of all people who are in Christ. So what does he say afterward? He says that all who are in Christ are new creatures. Before we look at the significance of the newness of those in Christ, I want to answer the question, what does it mean, as Paul says, for a person to be in Christ? It means that Christ identifies with that person and that he or she also identifies with Christ. Look back two verses with me and read verses 14 and 15, where he says, For the love of Christ controls us, Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might, not, or might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The phrase that Paul uses in verse 14, that one died for all, that one being Jesus, speaks to the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. In other words... He died as a substitute for you. The punishment that you have earned by your sin, Jesus endured in your place. By dying in the place of God's elect, Christ identifies with all Christians in his death. That's why Paul says that all died. All who are in Christ have died. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, when you are in Christ, your debt of sin, which is death, has been paid in full. And that is how Christ identified with you in his death. But what about you identifying with Christ? I said that when you are in Christ, Christ identifies with you and you identify with Christ. How do you then identify with Christ? 
look back to verse 17 with me, where Paul says that if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. The old things passed away. Now, for those old things to have passed means that something about you has ceased to be present. It's past. It's no longer true. And what could that be? That's answered again in verse 15, where Paul says that Christ died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. The old things that are no longer true or present for you are the passions, the lusts, and the desires that you used to live for. Brothers and sisters, think back to who you were before you repented and confessed Christ as Lord. What did you live for? Why did you do what you did? And are those things the same today? If you are in Christ, your answer to the last question is certainly no. That person who lived for himself and did everything for himself or herself is long gone. If you are in Christ, if you have died with him, you no longer live for yourself. And now you resonate with Paul when he says that the old has passed away. It's behind you. And go back to verse 17 with me now and look at the imperative part of what Paul says is true if you're in Christ. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. There are two sides to being a new creation, the side that was and has passed away, which we looked at, and then there is the side that is new and has come. To understand the idea of the newness that has come, we look back again to verse 15, where we just read that Christ identified with you and you with him in death, in his death. Uh, look at the second half of verse 15. Here Paul says that God's elect no longer live for themselves, but they live for him, Christ, who died and rose again on your behalf. So think about that. Christ died for you, and Christ also rose again for you. If in Christ you had only died and it ended there, what hope would there be for you? There's nothing to live for then. So let me ask you this time to think about who you are now after becoming a Christian. What do you live for? And why do you do what you do? I think Phil answered that question very well in his testimony. If you are truly in Christ, your answer, as Paul tells us should be, is that you live for Christ. You do everything that you do for Christ, who rose again on your behalf, and that is the new you. So now you may ask, what is the significance of Christ's resurrection? Why does Paul end his statement in verses 14 and 15 with a reminder of Christ's resurrection? It's significant because it shows God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. It's, in a way, God's nod of approval of the full payment of your debt of sin that Christ paid by dying on the cross. So when you are in Christ and Christ identifies with you in his resurrection, God's favor on Jesus equally falls on you. Christ's substitutionary work in death for you is completed in his resurrection. And as you identify with Christ in his resurrection, your death to your old way of selfishness and sin is replaced with a new life of righteousness and devotion to him. 
So I'll repeat the first profound truth that's given to us by the Apostle Paul here. The gospel of Jesus Christ renews your entire being. We looked at the fact that he said that you're a new creation. Your old life with its selfish desires has passed away. And your new life dedicated to Christ has come. You no longer live for yourself and the present earthly things. But instead, you live for Christ and for future heavenly things. Second, Paul's next gospel truth to energize your gospel witness is seen in verse 18, where he tells us that the gospel restores your relationship with God. And let's look at that again. Paul says there, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says here, now all these things are from God. What are these things that are from God? The these things, it's the truths that we just looked at, that Christ died for sinners, that he rose again to certify his substitutionary work so that you and I might have a new and eternal life of hope. These things that Paul talks about were ordained and planned by God. And why? The Apostle Paul tells us that God gave us these things in order to reconcile us to himself. What does it mean to be reconciled to someone? In the context of a relationship, it means to cause two people to become friendly again. When you were a kid, you may have had little arguments or fights with your siblings uh, where you might have given the asylum treatment to show them that you're not on good terms, so you don't talk to each other. And when your parents or teachers noticed, what would they tell you to do? Uh, they would tell you to go make up with each other and be friends again. So you both apologize, you make up, and you go back to being friends again. Uh, so you've been reconciled, and while you were not on good terms before, you're now friendly toward each other again. And so that's a simple example of reconciliation. Now for God to reconcile us, then, implies that we were not on good terms with him. There was a barrier of conflict between you and God, and that barrier was sin. Another meaning for reconciled, being reconciled, is to make two things consistent or in agreement with each other. We might call that compatibility. So before God reconciled you to himself, your old life marked with sin was incompatible or inconsistent or not in agreement with God's holiness. Sin and holiness are in comp complete opposition to one another, and there would have been no way for you to have any commonality with the holy God of the universe. But God was not content to leave things the way they were. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul explains that God took the initiative. He says that God reconciled us to himself through Christ. God did the reconciling work, and he did it through Jesus Christ, his son, in order to restore your relationship with him. Cascades Bible Church, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, your old self with all of your old sins have died. And in Christ, your new self has been made right with God. Paul says in the next verse, verse 19, that as a result of this reconciliation, God does not count your trespasses against you anymore. The sin that was an unpassable barrier between you and God has been removed in Christ. And now 
you are free to approach God, the creator of the universe. So now, Cascades Bible Church, if you are in Christ, you identify with the Son of God. You identify with Christ, who is the Son of God, which means that you also can approach God as your heavenly Father, just as Christ does. What relationship do you know that is more comforting, more stable, or more sure than a relationship with a righteous father? There's no other relationship like that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul writes, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When you were reconciled with, to God, you became adopted as sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Being sons and daughters, you are free to approach him, to share your burdens with him, and to ask your heavenly father for help in any trials. That's the second profound truth that Paul gives us in this passage. The gospel restores your relationship with God. Isn't that good news? Isn't that worth sharing with your friends and with your family? Well, Cascades Bible Church, that's exactly what God commands you and I to do. The third gospel truth that Paul provides to energize your own gospel witness is this. The gospel requires you to relay it to the world. Look at um, verses 18, so the second half of that, to 20 with me, where Paul says, He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. In these verses, Paul uses three key terms to exhort you to relay the gospel to the world. First, Paul uses the term ministry of reconciliation. The word ministry used here in verse um, 18 is diakonia. Diakonia has the meaning of service, especially of carrying out the commands of others. To give you an example of what this looks like, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. When the early church began, the first Christians were very dependent on each other for their means of living. And the church grew very quickly, so quickly that it became impossible for the apostles to teach and to serve everyone at the same time. So in verses 2 and 3, we see how they responded to this. It says, So the twelve apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in, the, in charge of this task. In Acts, when Luke speaks of serving tables, the word for serve has the same root word as the word for ministry. The Greek word for serve here is diakoneo, a verb form of the word for ministry, diakonia. These seven men were selected to serve the early Christians. And what does Luke say of the men who were picked for this service at the end of verse 3? He says that they were put 
in charge of the task of service. Return with me to 2 Corinthians 5 now. When Paul says here that God has given the ministry of reconciliation, it can be understood as God charges you with the task of service to unbelievers by relaying his message of reconciliation. The, me- the message of reconciliation Paul summarizes in this way, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And it's actually in this message of reconciliation that Paul states where we find the second key term that Paul uses to command us to relay the gospel to the world. And that is the term word of reconciliation. Word here is the Greek word logos. And here it means a true and trustworthy message, a message of wisdom. Brothers and sisters, when you proclaim the gospel, you can be confident because you have in your mouth the true and trustworthy message of wisdom. Yes, Scripture tells us that the gospel is foolishness to the world, but God tells us that it is wisdom. So be bold and be confident as you share the gospel message of Jesus Christ, because it is God's true and trustworthy message. Finally, the third key term that Paul uses to command us to relay the gospel to the world is found in verse 20, which is ambassador for Christ. In Paul's day, an ambassador was a representative of a king who was sent from one nation to another to relay a message. The ambassador had the king's highest trust, and the message he spoke to the foreign nations was as if the king himself was speaking it. If you are in Christ, church, you are to be, as Paul was, an ambassador of the king of heaven. You have been sent to your part of the world, whether it's Sterling, Ashburn, Leesburg, Herndon, Manassas, with a message. You have been sent with a message, and that message is God's message of reconciliation. God's message of reconciliation is not just a message without emotion. No, it's, it's one with emotion and with a strong desire. It's compelling, and it's serious. The Apostle Paul uses very powerful words here to describe how he communicates the gospel. The message is an appeal. Paul begs unbelievers on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. In Christ, Paul begs unbelievers to repent and to believe. And similarly, in Christ, Cascades Bible Church, you must beg unbelievers to repent and to believe because that is the heart of God, whom you are representing. And as you relay his message to the world, you are his ambassador. You beg. I'll repeat the third profound truth that the Apostle Paul gives us here. The gospel requires you to relay it to the world. And when you relay, it, uh, and when you relay the word of reconciliation on behalf of Christ, who is the true and living word, you must relay the gospel with the same heart as Christ would. You make an appeal, you beg. Finally, after giving us these three profound truths about the gospel, Paul gives us the gospel simply stated. This is a bonus point in our outline after the three that we've covered. 
So sometimes you don't have the luxury of having 20 to 30 minutes to sit down with someone and to thoroughly explain the doctrines of salvation. Even if you had just 30 seconds to make an appeal to someone to repent and believe, you could just repeat what Paul says in this final verse, 21. Uh, Look at the first half. Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This means your sins are imputed to Christ, or your sins are credited to him. Christ, who never sinned, was considered and treated as if he had sinned on your behalf. This also communicates Christ's substitution in the penalty of death. He took the place of sinners in receiving their righteous punishment. So, when you go to your friend or relative or coworker, you tell them, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on your behalf. Next, the second half of the verse there, Paul says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. While our sins have been credited to Christ, on the flip side, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. We have sinned, and we have not been righteous, but we're treated as if we lived righteously, just like how Christ lived righteously. And as a result of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, this becomes a greater and greater reality as we live for God and not ourselves. So you tell your friend, your relative, or your coworker that we have become the righteousness of God in Christ. To receive these benefits that God has made available, the unbeliever must repent and forsake his, his or her old way of living for their flesh and to put their trust in Christ, who who calls everyone to follow him. The gospel message can be that simple. But don't let its simplicity fool you into thinking it's weak or embarrassing. No. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. While the gospel is simple, it's powerful. So brothers and sisters, as you take up the call to be an ambassador, rehearse the gospel regularly to yourselves. Practice and reiterate it to one another. And remember these three profound truths from Paul to energize your gospel witness. The gospel is powerful to renew your entire being. The gospel is powerful to restore your relationship with God Almighty. And the gospel is powerful as you relay its message of reconciliation to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your uh, gospel, your, your word of reconciliation. And as we have seen, you've called us to be ambassadors, to relay that message to those around us. And as we do so, Lord, we pray that you would empower us with the same uh, boldness with the same courage that you did with the early church and as we do that may more souls come to know you may more souls um, submit to christ and may more souls be added to your kingdom Uh, lord we just thank you for this evening of uh, hearing uh, a testimony from one of our brothers of how this word of reconciliation has changed his life we thank you as we um Think about the ways in which our own lives have been changed, how you have um, put a new heart in us, as Philip uh, had said. Um, 
that brings us joy. Thank you for that, for this time of um, reflection. And uh, as we are sent out into the world, we pray that we can take up your call to be ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.